Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am thrilled about our guest today and our topic. First, our topic. If you're alive and you're living in the United States and you have a pulse, you are well aware of the division and anger that exists today. It seems to have infiltrated every single area of life. People are divided in the arena of faith, definitely in the arena of politics. It's come between family and friendships. And some would say it's actually not getting better. But what I'm learning, there are many people working toward unity today, not in spite of differences, but right in the midst of differences with the belief that we can still work together and come together and live together in unity. And one of those people doing good work in this arena is Alan Hilton. Alan is our guest today. He worked for a long time to bring people together across differences as a professor, both at Yale Divinity School and before that, St. Mary's College of California, and as a minister serving in New Canaan, Connecticut, Seattle, Washington, and Wayzata, Minnesota. He now devotes all of his work and his time and his effort to bringing people together across differences. And Alan's the uh, author of a new book titled A House United. He lives in Austin, Texas with his wife, Liz, and their teen and tween sons, Sam and Isaac, and their labradoodle, Watson. Alan, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be with you. So first, let's talk about the labradoodle because we just got one for Christmas. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it. So how old? Uh, just over three months now. And yeah. people in Denver who know me are shocked because apparently for a long time, people thought that I was not a dog lover. Uh, but Did you send off bad single, signals or what, what, what gave them that idea, Michael? <laughs> it wasn't, it's not so much the dogs. It was the dog owners. Um, so I won't get into that in case we have some listeners that are poor <laughs> dog owners. Just going to say... There's certain ways people treat their dogs and certain things they don't clean up that after a while it gets old. But yeah, that's yeah, right. It's been fun so far. He's actually laying right at my feet in the sunshine, sunning himself and sleeping as we do this. So very good. My Watson, uh, my Watson, our Labradoodle is over lying next to the couch. So perfect. Well, hopefully he'll stay asleep. So yeah. Uh, but second and more importantly, uh, what should our listeners know about you right from the start as we get started together? So I, I lived, as you said, in the academic world and then in the church world uh, as a professor and then as a minister, and all the time watched people I loved who disagreed with one another but didn't know each other. And over time, people on the right and the left became more and more angry at the people they didn't know. And... I had experienced these people as generative, faithful folks, but they were getting more and more to stereotyping one another across those differences mm. in very derogatory, dismissive, disdainful ways. And it, it, the pressure built inside me, and I think it was call kind of building, God's call kind of building, the pressure built inside me to, to get them to meet one another because they would, they would have at least respected one another on different levels than they were from a distance, right? Yeah. So, so House United and my work with it started 
back while I was a professor and, and minister just in my trying to do that to some extent. But at, at some point when the numbers of polarization, the sociologists were telling us we're getting near where the Civil War times were for polarization. And as that became more and more palpable and clear, I thought, you know, I, I should I should probably jump out and do this all the time. Yeah. And and so the origin of this work is in my experience of faithful, good, devout, and well-meaning people on both sides of the aisle who were starting to hate one another without knowing each other. Yeah. And you and I met because um, I actually basically cold called you after reading yes. the book. <laughs> it was um, very and it fun. It really was. Yeah. It was inspiring. And part of the reason it was inspiring is a close friend of mine um, who would say that she's at a different place from me politically and theologically she told me about the book, um, and one of the things we've long talked about is unity. So when right. she gave me the book, I was a bit skeptical, and then I read it, um, and then I was like, I've, I've got to talk to this guy. Um, so t tell us a little bit about the book, and then we'll dive a little bit more deeply into okay. some of the content. Yeah, when uh, you, you mentioned this sort of uh, – progression of division in our in our culture and and we've all seen it anybody who's been alive for for more than 15 years uh, has seen it grow right and and you mentioned in your opening that it doesn't seem to be getting better right and when i started the book in 2015 uh 2014 into 2015 i was going to blow the whistle on american polarization right i was going to tell people hey we're divided, and uh, it was going to be news. And then, of course, the 2016 campaign came, and everybody knew, right? Yeah. It, the the campaign uh, was rough. But there had been rough campaigns before. I think everybody realized that this was in a new category. This was in a, at a new level of division, and so I had to start the book over, right? And it became it became a first half that says here's where we are and maybe some of the reasons how that we got here so yeah. chapter one is we're pretty divided in all the statistics and stories of division and then then it goes to well the church hasn't exactly been an innocent bystander uh christians throughout the ages have been divisive and in this setting we're the culture wars people so uh maybe it's kind of on our bat a little bit that this yeah. has happened uh, certainly on our watch, and then, then over to some sense of how this, why this might happen in human communities, uh, and so it looks at, I, I look in the book at, you know, what is it about being human that makes us prone to divide and have tribes and and even start to think think that we're superior uh, within our tribe to the other tribes, and then finally to. Well, if all human communities have been that way and prone to division, why is ours on steroids, right? Yeah. Why, why do we become the people who are, uh, are most polarized in American history and among world cultures pretty polarized? Um, and so I go to, uh, well, we've got these echo chambers. We, we choose our news. Yeah. Uh, we, we locate within communities that are like us. We, so so the first half of the book is what's where do we find ourselves and how did we get here? Yeah. And then the second half is, well, why would we want to change that and how could we change it? Yeah. And so the why 
is I, I go to first Corinthians 12 and show Paul's, um, Paul's value for the diversity of gifts, right? Uh, God has made us different for a purpose. And most times in churches, when we, when we talk that way, it's about who can play the trumpet better or who can <laughs> speak better or right. But I started to toy with the thought that maybe conservatives and liberals were made this way. And if that's true, then at least Christian folk have to reckon with the notion that maybe God made us different for a purpose even in our perspective, right? Yeah. In, even in the way we do the world. And, and so every church maybe ought to have both progressive and, and conservative tendencies in its body so that it can fully maximize, right? And, then, yeah. and, and so difference as an asset rather than a threat yeah. was, was the turning point of the book. And then we go to, well, let's get Christians together across our difference then. And then let's talk about the hard things together and courageous conversations. So the first is Christian mingle, and the second is uh, courageous conversations. And then finally, well, if we get good at this, our world is falling apart. What if churches became a primary asset to our culture by being the place where people come together? Yeah. And this this is, uh, you and I have talked a little bit about it before. Um, this is a real live option. I mean, if a church gets good at talking about hard things, and the city council can't do that. Why not put out a shingle and help them figure out how to do it, right? Yeah. And and so when Jesus prays that the that believers, you know, he says, uh, "I pray not only for these my disciples, but also for those who will believe through their words, that they all may be one." Every time he talks about unity, Jesus then goes to, "So the world may know that you sent me." Yes. And that you love me as you love them, right? Um, love them as you love me. And, and so, so Jesus sees an impact of unity going beyond the church walls and into the world. Yep. And that fascinates me. Christian unity as a mission strategy fascinates me. And, mm. and that's kind of the driver of the book, but we got to get better at the early parts in order to, yeah. in order to get around to being good for the world. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the book in a quick run. So unpack some. You make a lot of observations about how we got here that I think were incredibly helpful. And the reason I say they're helpful is, first, you don't stop there. You don't just say, this is why we're divided. And then right. that's the sum total of the book. But I right. think it is helpful, um, for at least for me and for others I know who I've told them, you've got to read this book, Um to kind of have a lens of, oh, this is why we are where we are. And so you, I think it's your first chapter, you talk about the divided states of America, yeah. um, very close to the words of our poet Eminem, who refers to the divided states of embarrassment. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> but can you share some of those things, especially at a political level, because I, I feel like a lot of people are looking yeah. at the political world and are just, I, I literally said to my wife, I think it was Friday or Saturday, it's only... It, like it's it's just getting crazier and crazier uh, yeah. in Washington. So, what are some yeah. of those observations that you made um, regarding yeah. the division there? So, the um, sociologists take two levels of polarization. Sociologists will will say there's an elite level, which is the politicians, and there's a popular level, which is the rest of us, right? And so, the way people vote, the way they engage in in conversation in Congress 
or in the political world will be the elite level polarization. Uh, popular is just how people relate to one another. So that includes uh, blogs, social media, engagement in, of any kind for people, right? What you're asking about is the first. It's, it's how did we get so far from camp with, our, with the way we treat one another in politics? It wasn't that long ago that politicians thought their job was to get stuff done together. Yeah. Right? And, they, and they disagreed often on how it ought to get done. But they knew that they had to trade and they knew they had to engage and and they would ultimately give ground on one thing in order to gain another thing. One of the things that I noticed as I did the research for the book and have noticed even more since is pure types are in. Right. Uh, there's there are more people who in Congress are voting all red or all blue. Right. You know, the you know, the phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm. This vote on the on the way to end the um, the current government shutdown, when when the Democrats took the House last week, they proposed this, and two Republicans voted with the Democrats, and all Democrats voted for it. Right? If you look back, even fifteen years, um, two Republicans voting for a blue issue, or or a bunch of Democrats voting for a red issue, was not abnormal. Yeah. But now there's this sort of herd mentality that that has come through uh, some some things that happened oddly enough out of good intention, uh, and I don't want to go long on this because it may it may sound a little bit like inside inside political baseball. But in 1992, uh, Americans elected Bill Clinton to be the president of the United States. In 1994. Newt Gingrich led a, a taking over of the House by the Republicans, right? Yeah. When that happened, Newt Gingrich told all his Congress people, okay, you've always lived in Washington and that's great, but you don't know your people and they don't know you. So go and live in your districts, right? So Gingrich, part of the revolution was go out, live at home and come vote in Washington rather than the other way around, right? rather than live in Washington and go have vacation at home. Right. And so they did. But that the, the ancillary or collateral damage of that, nobody saw coming, which was suddenly people who had lived in Washington together, left, right, middle, and gone to each other's kids' soccer games and gone to the opera together and had dinner together, this sort of community of politicians no longer existed because they didn't go to the opera together and they didn't go to games together. And so being home in their district seemed like a good idea, but it was one of the first steps toward dividing the whole, the whole process, wow. right? Because if I don't know you, it's not as easy for me to make a deal with you. Yeah. And, and so things like that started to happen. And then they, they just, it grew because it was exploited by, you know, by leaders they exploited the, the distance, and now we're way, way, way over, yeah. far apart. Right? Fascinating. It begins with the breakdown of relationships. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And, and that's the way every division starts. Yeah. But this one just got magnified by a lot of other processes. So right? fascinating. And you, you already mentioned, but then you talk about how the church, I don't know if it's that the church has followed suit, but how the church has... Just continued, and yeah. in, 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 in not in every sector, but in many, to sow division. Um, 
And you use yeah. a couple of different examples in the book of where you've seen this. Can you share about some of those and maybe even some of the causes of the division yeah. there? So uh, we should sort of context this by the fact that religions have been characterized by division since the beginning of time. Yep. It's, it's one of the things I want to push on with House United and with our conversation and anybody who will, who will join us uh, is relig- my belief, my firm conviction is that religion is not inherently divisive, but it is tempting for religion to become that, mm-hmm. right? For people to think, okay, I just found truth, right? Which is a glorious experience. I just found truth. The light just came on. And, and in time, start to think that light is the only way to see this. And people who don't see it this way are, in some forms, going to hell. In other forms, are outside the company of the blessed or however, yeah. right? And, and so it's got some inherent division in it. But the, the parts of American history and recent American history that I go to in the book are in, we, we talk about the fundamentalist liberal uh, divide as if it's a part of the furniture, but it really didn't exist until the early 20th century when uh, there were fundamentals laid down by R.A. Torrey and then they became a sort of galvanizing point for what was then a, a growing sub movement within Christianity, right? It was invigorating, and it moved into a sort of conflict between people who held to those and people who didn't hold to those, and they mutually attacked one another. In the book, I put uh, Jay Gresham Machen, who was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and and I lived in his dorm room when I was there, right? Yeah. Um, I I lived in Alexander Four, where Jay Gresham Machen had lived, and he was a he was a conservative uh, theologian who's famous for his Greek introduction, but is was a was a guy who tried to start a movement at Princeton, but felt like he was being alienated by progressive uh, Christian the, uh, professors. Right, so he went off and started Westminster uh, Presbyterian Seminary in Philadelphia, and the the two movements became at odds. His counterpart was Harry Emerson Fosdick at least as I portrayed in the book, Harry Emerson Fosdick was a progressive preacher, golden tongued in New York city pulpits, large. He ended up at Riverside and kind of becoming the iconic figure who started Riverside church in, in New York. And both of them defined Christianity. Each of them defined Christianity in a way that didn't have the other one inside it. Right. And that set the course for the 20th century. And we still sort of, it still wreaks havoc with our sense of how how Christianity gets done, but most people think it's been forever. It just started in the early early 1900s. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, more recently, we've got you know uh, Rob Bell writes "Love Wins" and gets hammered from the left, uh, hammered from the right by you know what um, John Piper writes "Farewell Rob Bell" before he reads the book. Right. right. And and so on the on the sort of inquisitive side of of evangelicalism, there's a hammer to, to push Bell back into the fold or to excommunicate if he if he asks questions that we aren't supposed to ask. On the other side, 
a denomination with which I did a lot of ministry, the United Church of Christ, was making commercials in the 90s and early 2000s that uh, played on television that had bouncers outside a church door, and were they were these liberals were trying to represent uh, conservative churches where you couldn't get in if you didn't believe or look in a certain way, right? And <laughs> Right. So so you've got this sort of attack across going on from left and right where people are staking their claim yeah. and saying this is what real truth is. And y'all are stupid or you all are evil. And yeah. those are the only options more and more and more. Right. You're either dumb or you're evil because nobody could disagree with me if not one of those. Right. Yeah. If, if not for one of those. Um, Tony Morrison. And I do share this in the book. Tony Morrison, uh, that great. Uh, I, I think uh, Nobel Prize in Literature, um, African American author, spoke at a conference where I was as a grad student in in the '90s, and uh, she was doing inter- she was doing research on her book Paradise, and she said, "You know, I've read every vision of heaven and hell and afterlife that has ever prevailed in any culture in the world, and they're a lot different from one another, but." But they have three things in common. All three of them hold to community, eternity, and exclusion. Yeah. You and me together forever without them. And I think, I think we've seen that in different ways pop up in the church. Jesus prayed for something opposite that, right? Yeah, yeah. But what are some of the practices and some ways that we can begin to transcend the differences and move toward a more generous way of seeing and living? And I ask that specifically um, because I think a lot of people feel paralyzed in my in yeah. my experience, and they're yeah. waiting for some magnanimous personality and human being that can come in and wave a wand and bring everyone together around a bonfire. Yeah. But what I'm learning yeah. more and more is it begins around like, dinner table. It begins when you're home for Thanksgiving. Um, it begins when uh, you're having a conversation with a friend and you know that they voted for the other candidate. So yeah. what are some of the things we can begin doing personally to yeah. transcend differences and move toward the other and be more generous? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, in in All Quiet in the Western Front, which is a classic novel and and movie from the early 20th century um there's a a german soldier who's been trained out of his humanity and Mm -hmm. so he's a killing machine and he is in a battle where he's the guy who finally afterward has to clear the bodies right which i i can't imagine that job but he goes out and and he, he picks up the body of one of the guys he killed and a wallet falls out and when the wallet falls out it opens to photos of the man's family and suddenly this guy's humanity this german soldier's humanity just starts to flood back into him and he weeps on the battlefield he finds the finds the wife and family of this guy and it it turns his it turns his life because he gets to know this was a person and not just a set of ideas or or a cause right in our current system in our current polarization our starting point is often who did you vote for and then i know everything else about you yes right and and 
I dehumanize you. I, I get rid or I dehumanize myself relative to you. I can't yeah. have any human feeling for you because you are one of those red people or one of those blue people, right? And so step one in, in personal interaction is as I try to work with individuals and in, in churches and uh, corporations and step one is some kind of empathetic run at, you know, God created and Christ died for this person, right? And there is intrinsic value in this person because of those things. So my job initially with this person is to get that value, to understand that that exists. My first run is, this is a, this is a person God values highly. I'm going to hang with them somehow, right? Yeah. And then I get to, well, how can you disagree with me? But, but the starting point is some kind of empathic community. Because if we, if we have empathy before we get into the conversation that, uh, that divides us, the chances of our listening longer, the chances of our staying in the conversation long enough to get the other person yeah. go up astronomically, right? Psychologists, sociologists tell us that we've got a whole lot better chance of listening and learning from somebody if we value them. Yeah. Right. So that seems to me job one. Um, I, by the way, I think you're, I think you're entirely right about uh, what people are waiting for. Because people feel icky about having enemies in their own town, right? Yeah. Icky being a scientific term. Um, <laughs> the and, and when I go to churches, I'm a decent preacher, and I, I, you know, I can hold my own. But the the sermons I found three or four years ago, the, the sermons for which people clapped or stood up and clapped, were sermons on this. Yeah. And I very quickly learned that they want change but they don't know how to do it right they don't know how to get out of these ruts they don't want to have enemies but they don't know how to make them into friends because they're being taught by all kinds of culture um that that we should alienate from one another right and so you and i talked about this that um you're i mean you have this book come out um and then, I mean, there's other books that have come out since too. I think Ben Sass is the one who wrote the book. Yeah. Um, yep. There's a lot of work happening on the ground. Uh, I'm I'm involved in several things here in Denver. But you yep. were the one saying that's not what that's not what people are interested in reading right now. And right. so the media cycles are just furthering and furthering and furthering and furthering division. Um, CNN most recently is now running all the news stories on the divided Democrats. So now there's. Yeah. We're going to highlight the division within parties because two parties isn't enough. We need more fractured things. Um, And it is interesting to note, uh, as I speak with people, to your point, the people that went, the sermons that people get excited about is, I don't know people who are pumping their fist in the air over this division. I think people are tired of it. And to your point, they they don't know how, what, what to do. Yeah. Um, Well, I'm excited about what you all are doing at, at, your church and you are doing in in Denver and beyond, because uh, what I really discovered is people are ready to move toward one another and they just don't know how. So they need leaders. Yeah. Right. They need people who will say and it doesn't mean that the leaders like you and me and others doesn't mean that we're great at it. It just means that we've decided to put our mind toward it and see it as faithful. Right. Yeah. See, see it as a proper response to human value. <laughs> yeah. Right. And 
and I I think that's a lot. Uh, I mean, that's thread threaded through all the things we, we I do that I help try to help people do. Um, we do courageous conversations, and yeah. those are an attempt to take something like immigration and sit in a room long enough for people who thought they had the only right answer <laughs> to learn to listen to the insights or at least the causes of the other side, right? Yeah. Um, why would somebody believe we ought to close borders if I'm on the left? Or why would somebody believe that we ought to let everybody in on the right? And and stay with it long enough, not only for them to get beyond tolerance to some kind of mutual engagement, but maybe even to a place where we could consider that maybe if we have everybody in the room, we'll come up with something better than either side would have had at the beginning. Right. right? So move all the way from tolerance to mutual respect onto mutual learning and way to the pinnacle of uh, collaboration. Yeah. Right? We get to a point where, hey, we can come up with a better idea because we have difference in the room. Yeah. Right. That that people love to start to feel their way up that up that staircase. Right? Yeah. I, they feel free, and people come out of these courageous conversations just with this sort of euphoria that nobody got killed. Right. <laughs> we did. There were no fatalities, and we talked about something really hard. And and so I do that with individuals, and I also do it with uh, the largest group I've ever led in a courageous conversation is four hundred. Right. Wow. We had we uh, the week before the marriage amendment in Minnesota in in must have been 2012. Uh, we had a big 400 person gathering and we set the table and had them talk about it. Uh, and it, it we didn't do everything right. But yeah. it, it, it at least they came out and said, whoa, this this could happen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, so groups can do this. Not just people across the coffee table or, or uh, not just book clubs. Uh, I mean, even congregations can get together and do this kind of conversation. Yeah. And, and that's pretty, pretty brilliant to see just what God can do if we, if we put ourselves in a room and just try. I can't remember who, where I first heard this, but in talking about those different approaches, somebody said every revolution needs a clipboard. And so I have said that over and over to our staff. And it's interesting, to your point, what I'm learning is when I show curiosity toward somebody who um, both would either be left of me or right of me, um, that what happens is, is they feel dignified. Like, oh, yeah. you want to hear from me. You want to know what I think. Um, and especially if they know that I already disagree with them. Yep. Um, there's a sense of just learning to ask questions yeah. and then learning to listen um, yeah. versus just waiting for your turn to talk. And where, in your work, where do you most often see that? Is it in individual relationships or is it where do you, where do you run into this? Yeah. I'm just um, laughing because you're interviewing me now. Yeah, well, that's the, <laughs> that's the way I roll. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it is. I am. I. Um, I, I what I'm learning is how do we help people in, in, in my work? How do we help people see the other? So yeah. I think it was last, I think it was December, 2017. I got invited to speak to the ACLU of Denver and yeah. I was sitting next to the attorney who represented the gay couple who was refused service at masterpiece cake shop. Yeah. And they asked me to come and speak because they knew that I was a pastor of an inclusive church 
but I showed up and said, let me help you understand why a guy like Jack Phillips would say no to a couple. Yeah. And kind of the message was evangelicals aren't the spawn of Satan. Um, And there was a, it was awkward in the room, but then the attorney said, you know, actually Jack Phillips is a really nice guy. Yeah. And there was like a collective gasp in a lot of tension and then everything calmed down and it was like, um, I really wanted people to see that this is a human being. Now, sure, we can disagree. We can be on different sides. We can have the arguments. There's the Supreme Court decision that was a very narrow decision on and on. Um, But that's what I'm often trying to do. The pain of that, for anyone who's listening, as we always talk about next steps, is when you show up with your tribe, so to speak, and then offer insights for what they would consider the other or the enemy or them, you oftentimes will get thrown into, oh, you're one of them. Yeah. Even though they know you're, you're not, um, yeah. that the third way, the transcendent way, the bringing together, it's, it can be, the challenges, it can be very lonely. Um, yes. And that's, I think, why I've been so encouraged just in our conversations, Alan, that like, there are other people doing this. And the yeah. more people do it, the more people notice. Um, yeah. Let me ask this. We do live in a culture right now, um, and many have commented on this. Jonathan Haidt has written extensively yeah. about it. Ken Wilber, Richard Rohr, John McWhorter. Um, yeah. they're, they're observing that we live in a culture that's teaching people to be easily offended. Um, yeah. Ken Keyes, in his, I think it's his work, The Handbook to Higher Consciousness, said, you add suffering to the world as much when you take offense as when you give offense. Dallas Willard, um, That's the a great late, quote. late great Dallas Willard, said yeah. he is able to observe one's spiritual maturity by how easily they're offended. Um, yeah. And so you you brush past, you talk a few times about Jonathan um, Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. But yeah. what are some ways past this very easily offended call-out culture that we seem to be in that to me is as devoid of grace as the most legalistic right-wing church that I've yeah. ever been in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, John, by the way, Jonathan Hyde, I, I, he tweeted out his New Year's resolutions, and they were all about taking less offense. Yes. Right? And, and that's, that's a huge part of any success in this, right? And so how do we become a people who aren't so defensive, who aren't so, um, we, we kind of defensively offensive, right? Um, and, and one of the, one of the cool things that I've seen and you've seen too, is when people, when people relax their usual hypersensitivity to difference, because it's, it's default mode, as you're saying. It's default mode right now for us to wait for that trigger, right? For people to wait for the trigger, whether it's from the left or from the right, for people to wait for that sign that the other person is just not my kind of person. And we're, we're very quick to do it. And it's, it's extremely fun to watch. I was in a, a room in Connecticut doing a, a crazy conversation on politically correct speech. Right. We were throwing around, uh, you know, how how people experience speech restriction versus speech freedom. And 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 there was uh, a person there 
who was from a uh, left-wing college and another person who had kind of come up through the ranks of business. And uh, the one was a female and the other was a male. And they started out with this default sense of the other's absolute wrongness and absolute kind of wickedness in a way, right? And by the end of by the end of the conversation, they had seen through. They had stayed in conversation long enough to actually get coffee together afterward. And I got an email after from each of them saying, "I made a friend today." Wow. Right? You got to have more of these. I made a friend today um, because they relaxed their recoil. Right. right. And and that tendency to be easily offended or easily enraged or uh, sort of hysterical yeah. is hurting us in a big way. If churches became and Christians became people who could take a breath. Right. right? If Jews and Muslims, if religion became a place where we learned, we taught people how to take a breath. That would be a huge accomplishment of our generation of Christian leaders, right? Yeah. Or of religious leaders, just to get people to take a breath. Yeah. Um, the other thing, and I, I wanted to sort of hop back to something you were saying earlier about the, uh, your experience at the ACLU and, and the people so quickly wanting to claim, uh, someone and, uh, you know, as, as one of us or label them as one of them. Do you remember when Eugene Peterson was interviewed, about his views on gay marriage. Yeah. I don't remember who did it. Jonathan and Merritt did it. Jonathan, did Jonathan do it? Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, <laughs> and he said it in a certain way. Um, he, he spoke on the issue of gay marriage in a certain way, and suddenly his books were no longer available through certain booksellers. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? And, and the, the speed with which we disqualify people from our tribe or with which we recruit, because at the same time, there were a whole lot of people on the left saying, we got Eugene Peterson, right? Um, <laughs> and, and you and I know that dynamic, and so do the people listening. If we could just take a breath, right? If we could just be the people who wait and say, well, maybe this person isn't all one thing. Yes. I, yes. I, listened, I listened to an interview on NPR once a bunch of years ago. Uh, with an, uh, a young British actress who had been in these wildly different parts. She'd been in a, a biker babe role. She'd been in a merchant ivory sort of 19th century Victorian England role. She'd been in a slasher movie. She And the interviewer said, is this intentional? I mean, you're a young actress. This is a lot of different kinds of things. And she said, you know, the kind of person who, if you know they're a vegetarian, you know everything else about them. Yeah. I don't want to be that person. And yeah. If we, if we as, as leaders started to make that a value, make it Im impossible for people to know everything about you by one thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's complex Christianity. It's complex living, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's beautiful. How much, how much, if any, cynicism are you encountering? Or, I mean, do people ever say, you know, ask what you do and then kind of roll their eyes like, yeah, good luck? Or is there, is there a hope that you see that's transcending and moving beyond the cynicism? Uh, the people who roll their eyes and say good luck are most often people who want it, <laughs> who want it to happen but think it's just awfully hard. And so what do you do for a living? I say, and then they laugh at me and say, you know, well, that's easy or some, something like that. Yeah. Um, the people 
who are against this way of doing the world, the people who, who have contended against what I do for a living, are people who see it, I mean, to be frank, people who see it as the, the uh, luxury of the privileged, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, was, I was taken on on, on uh, social media by a guy who said, uh, civility is fine unless you're the person who doesn't have things and you're asked to ask politely for them, right? Um, and this was a, a racial conversation, and it became a sort of broader political conversation. And I completely get that. I get that um, that there are there are causes that need passion. Yes. But I don't think there are causes that gain by inhumane treatment. Right. Right. <laughs> so there's something in there in the book. I I quote. Uh, I'm a Hamilton guy, right? I I, uh, I memorized the memorized the soundtrack. Oh my goodness, my daughter! And, when you meet my middle daughter, you and her are gonna hit it off because she's great. Hamilton, like twenty four seven. Same thing. Memorize the whole deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and and so there's no way you could call the way Jefferson and Hamilton work together civil, right? They they go at one another. They call one another names, but they stay at the table. Yeah, and that's that's what I care about the the roots the people who do music for Jimmy Fallon's show at yep. night um, wrote a wrote a, a prologue or a or a sort of intro to Hamilton for his mixtape afterward and and uh, they they feature this painting of the founding fathers in which they're all standing in line it's by John Trumbull and and they're all standing in line very. Uh, graciously and politely talking to one another and and the the hip-hop line that the roots wrote you ever see a painting by john trumbull founding fathers standing in line looking all humble patiently waiting to sign a declaration to make a new nation not a single grumble right yeah but the reality is messier and richer kid the reality is not a pretty picture kid Every cabinet meeting is a full-on rumble. What I'm about to show you is no John Trumbull, right? I get that that strong passions in the idea world make for conflict, right? They make for good conflict if we stay at the table. It's when we shout across a barricade, right, where we shout across the chasm to people we aren't ready to engage that I think inhumanity sounds. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, because I think there's a fine line. I think civility can get overplayed. And that's the the people who oppose this way of doing and, and the people you've talked about earlier who are trying to get this done. People who oppose that are saying, you just want everybody to play nice. And when everybody plays nice, the the rich get richer and the powerful stay in power. Right. Um, and and I I like that as a as a critique. And. I think people who do the kind of work you and I do can't get far from that. Uh, can't get too far from that. Yeah. We have to keep it on our frontal lobe somewhere. Yeah. And I believe it's in the righteous mind that Jonathan Haidt talks about people's minds don't change when they're attacked from a place of right. anger. Yep. And um, I wish I could remember who, who, what article this was. But I read it, I think it was in November, that pointed out there's so much punitive attack that's currently happening where, to your point, it's not that we shouldn't be angry. 
if you read the Psalms, the Psalms, yeah. if anything else, invite us toward anger. It's the, you're this kind of person, therefore I know who you are and I'm going to attack you because whatever is happening in the world is 100% your fault. When that happens, uh, every bit of research shows that the person receiving that attack is actually entrenched further into the way that they're thinking yeah. and will retreat further into their tribe. And yeah, it doesn't that's right. Unity. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and it's the opposite. And and I think that's the fallacy in what's going on. That's the that's the major flaw. Is okay. You have a position that you think is true in the world, right? How are you going to expand the number of people who think that's true? Yeah. Yeah. And and the the president of Notre Dame had a piece in the Wall Street Journal a decade ago in which he said persuasion is the is the key to civility. Yeah. If we actually think I want to persuade you of something, we have to treat one another as humans and and respect one another at some level. Uh, people don't as you just said, people don't get converted to the views of people who are shouting at them. Right. <laughs> right. It just it, it just doesn't produce transformation. No. Not at all. Yeah. It doesn't work in parenting either, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> no? Oh, See, it's like, working great for us. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. So, Alan, uh, I know you have an online presence. Where can people find you online? So, uh, www.houseunitedmovement.org is the website. I'm, uh, I've told you before that I'm. It, it's an embarrassing kind of placeholder, but I'm actually today working on putting it more current. So that's a, that's a decent place to find me. I, in that, um, in that setting, uh, I am updating now where I'm going to be when, so what churches, what universities, what seminaries. Uh, so my schedule, if people want to find me, um, the other ways to get me are on, on Facebook house, house United movement is the name of the Facebook page. And I'm, Rev Prof Hilton on uh, on Twitter. Perfect. And um, the book is titled The House United, and that's yep. on Amazon and anywhere books are sold pretty much, right? Anywhere books are sold. Great. And and I can't uh, encourage our listeners, you, buy the book. Um, I, I'm always like, shameless in promoting other people's material. Um, <laughs> but truly, this is, I think this is the second time I've read a book and like did everything I could, could to find the author. Um, because well, that was really one of the time. best phone calls I've gotten. <laughs> well, <thank laughs> I, I loved I, Michael. You called and and I I saw. Uh, I don't usually answer um, area codes that I don't know, but I thought, well, it's Denver, and and there you were, and and what a great conversation that was, and and I so appreciate this conversation. Yeah. I love talking to you. Yeah, it's been fun. Well, thank you for being here on the Changing Faith podcast, my friend. It's it's been fun. And Thanks. Uh, I look I'll talk forward to you soon. To more conversations. I don't know. Probably on the golf course. Maybe cigars. <laughs> some bourbon will be in there or something. But yeah. and thank all of you for joining with us as well. My hope and prayer for all of us is that we would find ourselves moving toward the other, moving toward those with whom we disagree, uh, and doing so with great love and grace and compassion for the sake of unity. Uh, and as Alan pointed out earlier, so that the world would know. Uh, more about who Jesus is. So that is it for today. And so until next time, as always, much love and peace to you.